We are uh, going to be back in Colossians. Uh, I know it's been a few weeks. Back in Colossians uh, chapter 1. So if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to be. I just want to reorient us to this book. It's uh, Paul uh, writing a letter to the believers in Colossae. He did not establish this church, but he had heard many good things about this church and was writing into that, speaking into that, because he had heard about their faithfulness and their, and their love. And so he wanted to write to encourage them and to speak specifically into some things that they were dealing with in that area. So I just want to start, again, to reorient us. Uh, I just want to read through from, from verse 1, uh, and then we'll get into our passage. Verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope reserved for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth the gospel which has come to you, just as it has come to all the world, also it is bearing fruit and increasing, even as, as it has been doing in you since the day you heard it, and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. For this reason also, since the day we heard about it, have not ceased praying for you, asking that you may be filled with all the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all perseverance and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things in, on the earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his, of his cross." And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his body of flesh through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Let me pray for us. Lord, as we uh, get into these verses today, uh, we just want to understand what you want us to understand. We want to make sure that we're, uh, we're focused in on what uh, you want to say to us this morning, that we're open to being transformed, open to being changed by your spirit. We just want you to be at the center of, of this process. 
that you would be renewing our minds. And maybe if there's areas of our thinking or areas of our behavior that we need to modify, Lord, that you would be at work in doing that in us. Pray that you'd help me get, to get out of the way and just allow your spirit to teach this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so we're starting in verse 19 this morning. I'm actually backing up just a little bit. We covered uh, these couple of verses a couple of weeks ago. But it, it's kind of a hinge point in his argument here. So I want to start here. You have uh, in 15 through 18, what we just heard, you have Paul describing Jesus as the precise image of the Father, right? The exact image, the fullness of who he is. And that he's the top dog over all creation, the first one. The one who deserves to be first place in everything, including in everything in our lives, right? Creator of all things, sustainer of all things. And he just continues on here and says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. To dwell means to permanently reside within him. This is an idea I think we've gotten used to, Jesus being fully deity. But it is a strange idea, right? That the fullness of who God is could dwell in a human body in bodily form. If you remember this picture when the Apostle Thomas is kind of doubting whether Jesus could rise from the dead, because who can rise from the dead, right? That doesn't really happen. And he sees Jesus for the first time. We have this picture here. It says, then Jesus said to Thomas, place your finger here and see my hands and take your hand and put it in my side and do not continue in disbelief, but be a believer. Thomas answered and said to him, my Lord and my God, right? My curios, Lord, master, the number one thing in my life, the number one person in my life, my master and my theos, my, my God, the deity, the transcendent being who exercises absolute control over everything in creation, now just picture that, right? He's bowing before this human guy who looked pretty normal, pretty ordinary. And he's like, my Lord and my God. It's crazy. But he was exactly right. That Jesus was fully human, fully embodied, but also very much fully God. And it was the Father's good pleasure for him to be fully God. And then he says, why? Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Reconciliation assumes a broken relationship. Reconciliation can't exist without a broken relationship, right? So it assumes a broken relationship and an estrangement between two people, an alienation between them. And it usually assumes that some offense has gone on, right, that caused the alienation, that caused the broken relationship. You guys might be able to relate to this in your own life. You might be estranged from someone who maybe you were close to at some point. And you probably could identify some offense, something that caused that alienation, Maybe it happened at one point in time or it was something that happened over a long period of time that caused that estrangement. But because Jesus was fully God, he was in this unique position to reconcile God 
and his creation. To reconcile those who had been estranged from himself. And again, only one, one who's fully God and fully human could be the reconciler of the world, right? Well, how did he accomplish this? What were the means by which he accomplished this? It says, having made peace through the blood of his cross. For those in Christ, he made peace, which, you know, I, I love words. I love the tense of this verb. He made peace. It's in a, a, a tense that's called the aorist tense. It's past completed action. It's done. We don't have to worry about him somehow making peace for us in the future. He accomplished it. It's done. He's brought an end to hostilities between us and God. We don't need to do more to somehow reconcile this relationship. We don't need to add to what Jesus did. He accomplished it. It's done. It's finished. We are in a reconciled state with our God because of the blood of the cross. Peace exists between us and our God because of the cross. Through his suffering and his sacrifice and the violence he endured, Romans 5 speaks to this. He says, for if while we were enemies, right, we needed that reconciliation, we were enemies at him, we were enemies of him, we were at odds with him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also celebrate in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Amen, right? Thank you. Point in your hand out if you want to fill it in. Is Jesus, as God himself, was able to fully restore mankind's broken relationship with their creator through his sacrificial death. Jesus, as God himself, was able to fully restore mankind's broken relationship with their creator through his sacrificial death. Let's go on to verse 21. It says this, And although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, engaged in evil deeds. we stop there. He's describing who we were. That in our attitudes, attitude's a pretty good uh, translation of this. There's not a, a great translation of this word into English. It's really a word that means mind. Our minds were hostile in attitude. Our minds were alienated. But it's not just mind. It's our disposition. It's our, it's our perception of our world. It's our worldview. It's, it's the way we think, the way we reason, the way we understand things, the way we perceive things in our life, how we process things. I don't know if you ever, you've ever had this experience, I definitely have, where uh, you're with someone, you're looking at the same information, you're looking at the same thing, but you come to two complete, completely different conclusions looking at the same thing. I don't know if you've been in that situation, but it's hard to even have a conversation with that person because they completely look at it absolutely different than you do, and you're looking at the same thing, right? But they have a different worldview, they have a different perspective, they have a different way of understanding that same data. That's what he's describing here. He says, our whole way of thinking, your whole way of thinking, was alienated from God. 
relationally estranged from God, distant from God. You weren't even close to being on the same page. And this is something I think we misunderstand at times, especially those of us who have grown up in the church. We somehow think that, you know what, I actually was pretty close to God. I've been pretty close to God my whole life, actually. And then I just at some point got a little closer to him, right? No. It's not the truth. You do not have an accurate view of your life pre-Christ. You were completely estranged from him, and so was I. Our whole deal, our whole way of thinking was completely estranged from him, completely alienated from him. In fact, so much so so that he describes it as hostile to God. We were previously, our whole thing was hostile to him. That means to be an enemy, enemy or to be an opposite. Like if there was a gamut of things, he's over here and we're way over here. We weren't even close. I've heard some confusion over this over the years where it's like, man, I have this friend in my life who's not a believer, but man, they're a really good guy. Like, they got to be somewhat close to God, right? Mm -mm. Farthest they could possibly be. And so were we. Our way of thinking wasn't only just wrong or, you know, misguided or, or not informed enough. It was completely at cross purposes with God, opposed to God's ways and thinking. More closely aligned with God's enemy than with God. Do we hear that? More closely aligned with God's enemy than with God. I think this becomes important because it's easy to hear fine-sounding ideas from those who are not gods, who are not a part of his family. And we go, man, that, that's, there's got to be some truth in that. In fact, I remember my freshman year in Bible college, I had a, uh, a professor who uh, I strongly <laughs> had a problem with, uh, but she said, uh, all truth is God's truth. And I would go, yeah, that's true. Absolutely, I agree with that. All real truth is God's truth. But she used that phrase to say this. You can find a little truth in Buddhism. You can find a little truth in Hinduism. You can find a little truth in our culture. Just looking at cultural artifacts and things that are going on in our culture, you can find a little truth in all of those things. Mm -mm. They are opposed to God. They are enemies of God, and we have to keep that in mind. We have to have that perspective, and we have to look at ourselves, because that's really what he's talking about. He's like, look at yourself, pre-Christ. Your whole way of thinking, your whole deal was hostile to him. Now, I think for the Colossians, it was much easier, because most of these had come to Christ later in their life. They were adults when they came to, came to Christ, right? So they could look back and they could look at their ways. The, the, the way the Greek world was, was very, very um, anti-God in many ways, at least anti-his morals, right? And so they could look back and they could go, yeah, man, I was so entrenched in that way of living and thinking. I can totally see how he transformed my life. And some of us in this room had that same thing, right? Your story is, oh, man, it was, I, it was messed up. 
I was messed up before. That's a good place to be. In fact, I mentioned this uh, previously, but I, but I agree. I think that's an advantage that a believer who comes to Christ later in their life has over those of us who grew up in the church. Because you, they can look back and see that clear distinction, that clear thing that says, you know what, I was and now I am. And those of us who grow up in the church, it's like, I think I've always been. In fact, I've heard that. When did you become a Christian? I just kind of always have been. Well, you're probably wrong about that. <laughs> uh, but it's a little sad that you can't make that distinction, right? You can't look back and you can't see it. Because it would be much easier if you could see it. Much easier to understand there was a past and now a present, right? Steeped in evil deeds, wicked, degenerate, morally worthless deeds. In fact, in fact, the word here for evil is a word that's used as a title for Satan. He is the evil one. This is Paneros, and it's Ha Paneros. He's the evil one, right? And we, again, we're much closer in behavior to the, the enemy of God, to Satan himself, than we were to God. We weren't even close. But somehow we get fooled into thinking that, man, there's some pretty good people in this world. Okay. But their deeds are evil. I was a pretty good person. Okay. But your deeds were evil. Not close. Evil. And I think it helps. It will really help us to view it that way. Because the problem is we have to be convinced if we think we were pretty good before and we're just a little bit better now, then we really have to be convinced of the argument he's about to make. We, we become a little bit like the rich young ruler. Guess familiar with the story, right? He goes to Jesus and, he, and, and he's like, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus is like, yeah, just do all these laws. Like do all this, this stuff that's in the Mosaic law. So, and he's like, I, I've got it down. I totally have it handled. And he's like, you're so far from Christ. Like, like you're so far from really being able to follow me. Go give up everything. Oh, okay. Can't do that. Evil. I like the distinction that um, my teaching pastor made growing up. I really like this, this picture of this. That there's, there's ugly flesh and there's pretty flesh. Right? There's, there's, there's flesh is like the, the, um, the sinful uh, part of us, right? The, the weakness, our human weakness in sinfulness, right? Um, and, and there's some people who their sinfulness is super ugly, right? You look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, that is disgusting. How horrific your sin is, right? But then there's others of us who have kind of pretty flesh kind of the, the niceties of sin, like the things that people don't really offend people all that much, right? Like, like, like you can still put on your Sunday best over that ugliness, right? But it's all flesh. It's all sin. It's all utterly disgusting and evil. I like... Uh, how Paul sums this up in Romans chapter 3. He's trying to make a point to those who think, you know what, I'm actually pretty decent. 
I don't know if I need Christ, actually, because I, I actually am pretty decent. I think God it, it accepts me. And he's trying to make a case for that, and this is, this is part of his case that he makes. He says, as it is written, there is no one, no, no righteous person, not even one. Wait, not me? No, 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 not you either. There is no one who understands. I think I'm pretty smart. No, Mm-mm, you don't get it. There is no one who seeks God. Well, you know, I've, I've had been on a spiritual journey. No, 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 no. No one who seeks God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt, putrid, at the core, rotten. There's no one who does good. Well, but that friend, he's really nice. Nope. No one who does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and they have not known the way of peace. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Well, that's true, actually, of my friend. He's a good guy, but he doesn't respect God. Well, you know what? That, that rottens, that makes everything about his life rotten. Because it's the bare minimum to show respect and reverence for the creator of the universe. If you can't look back at your pre-Christ life and view it this way, it's either because you've forgotten what that was like or you don't understand how evil your pretty sins are. They're rotten. The second problem I think that we have with this phrase, or we might have with this phrase, is the past tenseness of it. Do you notice that? <clears throat> Although you were previously alienated and hostile in attitude, <clears throat> engaged in evil deeds, yet now, He's going to say, yet now, because that's a past tense thing. That's who you were, not who you are. That's what you did, not what you do. You were alienated. You were hostile. You were evil. You did evil. Yet now. Love it. This also could be translated, but now. And I think you guys by now know I like big butts, and I cannot lie right? This is a good but. This is a good yet. Yet now, yet he has now reconciled you. Something is different. Something has changed. Not only was Jesus fully God and fully man, and did he reconcile all creation. He worked to reconcile all creation to himself. Also, that fully God and fully man reconciled you and me to himself and to the creator. Our broken relationship, our estrangement, our alienation is gone if we're in Christ Jesus. We caused that alienation, our offenses, our, our hostility, our evil choices, our whole way of doing life, our whole way of thinking was hostile to God. We caused the problem and we alienated ourselves from him. 
but he has now reconciled you, and he has now reconciled me. (coughs) And how did he do that? In his body of flesh through death. Body of flesh, this is a nerdy thing I'm about to go on here, is, is, is interesting. That phrase is interesting because it's the only time it ever occurs um, in the Old or the New Testament. Um, and it's interesting because it, it puts these two words, which are kind of these rich theological ideas, right next to one another, which is body and flesh, which actually both of those words could be translated as body. They both could be translated as flesh. So you could really say, in his body of body through death, or his flesh of flesh through death. But the first one, body, is, is really like human anatomy, right? It's like fingers, toes. It's, it's like the, the parts of your body that make up yourself. But the second word is, is the human body in view of its limitations, in view of its weaknesses, the, the nature of being human, Right? There's a, a, a popular song that's been out for a number of years now. I'm only human. And I, how's it go? And I break when I fall down and I, is that how it is? I crash and hit the ground. You know it, McKenna, you're with me. Uh, yeah, right? I'm only human. We all recognize that we have, we have a limited human nature, right? We're limited in our humanness. That's flesh. So in his body of flesh, his human body that was weak and vulnerable and able to be pricked and bleed and able to fall down and scrape his knee, knee, in that state, he was able to die. It gave him the ability, (laughs) the, the weakness to be able to be limited enough and vulnerable enough that he could be beaten. Vulnerable enough that he could be whipped, and it hurt, and it scar. Weak enough that he could be put up on a cross and be crucified. Which was actually the scandal of the first century, especially in the Roman Empire. Your God is weak up on that cross? Come on. That's no God. Gods are powerful. Well, he made himself weak. He limited himself so that he could die to reconcile us to God. I don't know about you, I'm pretty glad about that. Because look at the next phrase. He says, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This powerful God, Jesus as fully God, became a weak and vulnerable human to be tortured and killed so that, for this purpose, in order that he could bring us before the God of the universe, the formerly alienated one, the formerly hostile one, the formerly evil one, now a holy one. Set apart for God's purposes in this world and the next. This is the exact same word, by the way, as the word he uses in verse 2 when we talked about saints. You know, he addresses them as saints. Same word. He's like, he's now made you a saint. Made you a holy one. You were not. You were everything but holy. 
but he secured by his death on the cross holiness for us. And we can believe it or we can disbelieve it. We can go, oh, you know what? That sounds good, but I don't think I'm holy. Okay. Or we can listen to what he has to say and go, look, Jesus actually secured this for you. Jesus actually did this for you and for me. He made us holy ones. Present tense holy ones. He also made us blameless. This one's crazy. This word means without spot, without defect, unblemished. This is a a word that was used, actually these two words together were used for, to describe things in the Old Testament um, and the New. Look at Leviticus 1. It says, in his offering is a burnt offering from the herd. He shall offer a male without defect. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it's the same word. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting so that he may be accepted before the Lord. It was required that this sacrifice be without defect. You couldn't have your, you know, your lame uh, goat come in and be sacrificed. It had to be a perfect goat, the most perfect goat in your herd, without spot, without defect. This is also described of our Lord. Look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. It says, if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like gold, like silver or gold, but silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of the lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Jesus Christ. I, I, I get a little uncomfortable that the words used for the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, who he is, are used of you and me. That is troubling for me. I want to push it away and go, that can't be. The problem is, to do that is to deny what he's saying here, which is very, very clear. Jesus on the cross secured blamelessness for us, moral blamelessness, no fault, no no guilt. Wow. And there's a third thing, beyond reproach, literally means someone who is impossible to justly accuse because they're perfectly innocent. I have nothing to accuse you on. You're perfectly innocent. Jesus made us innocent of all charges, past, present, future. No one can make a charge against us. Not a legitimate charge. Because we have been made completely blameless. I don't know, right? The reality is this. If we're to embrace this, We need to look at ourselves as who we are now. Not who cares what we were. We all have a pretty good idea of what we were, hopefully. But this is what you are. This is what he's trying to tell the Colossian believers. He's like, this is what you are. This is your your current state. 
And in fact, not only is this what you are, but, but the whole reason why Jesus came to die on the cross and shed his blood and suffer for us was to make us this, right? And so I think to reject this or to ignore this is a little bit like a kid being given like a priceless present on Christmas and then pushing, pushing it away and go, you know, what? I didn't earn that. So I, I, I can't take that. Like, that's rude, right? That's inappropriate. Like, if that's my kid, I'm like, hey, uh-uh. You grab that gift, you love it, right? It's like ungrateful. And maybe even a little self-absorbed to go, no, 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 it can't be. I think the right response for that kid on Christmas morning and the right response for us is to just embrace it right? To appreciate it, to be thankful for it, and to recognize that this is a present reality for us. Because it is. Put it in your handout if you want to fill it in. Is we were in every way at our odds with our creator, yet Jesus' death brought us near to him by making us perfectly innocent. We were in every way at odds with our creator, yet Jesus' death brought us near to him by making us perfectly innocent. Now, I think part of the problem, this is just a side note, but part of the problem why I think we want to push this gift away uh, and say, no, it's not true, it can't be true. Maybe it has some future truth, but can't be true for me now. Is that we don't like when people get things they don't earn. We're just not big on that, right? Like, no one wants to see the worst team in the NFL be the Super Bowl champions when they didn't win the Super Bowl. Anybody want to see that? Who was the worst team this last year? I don't even know. It's usually the Browns, but <laughs> not the Niners, right? Who, who had the worst record this last year? Anybody know? Was it the Bears? Okay. It's usually the Browns, but we'll go with the Bears, right? Can you imagine, like, they get to the end of the season, like, you know, Mahomes does his thing at the Super Bowl, and it's like, wow, great job. And then the celebration is that the Pittsburgh Steelers get up on the stage and they lift the trophy. Woo! Like, no one wants that. We want to see someone earn that. But we can't let that part of, of, our, of the way we view things keep us from the most excellent truths that are here about what we are now, what we've been made now. And it had nothing to do with us. It had everything to do with what Jesus accomplished. We're the losers. We're the bottom of the barrel. Yet we've been made this. Only response can be thankfulness, right? Now, the next uh, word we're not going to love here if, well, hold on, that sounds conditional, right? It's because it is conditional. All the great things he was just talking about that we're struggling to embrace, but we want to embrace this, right, might not mean anything for us. All of what Jesus accomplished through his death might be completely ineffective for us. All this past tense, present tense stuff may not apply to me at all. 
I don't know if I like that. Let's see what the condition is here. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. There's two conditions here. Continue in the faith, not shifting from the gospel and the anticipation of what's to come, right? The hope of the gospel. Not shifting from that. Now, I know, we get nervous on these verses. These are not comfortable verses for us. I don't know that the first part was very comfortable for us either, but we start wondering, can I lose my salvation, right? People go there immediately when you're you're reading these verses, right? And in fact, people who are like, yeah, you can lose your salvation, these are the verses they pull out. They're like, look, right? The problem is, I think the problem with these verses is not the verses themselves. These verses are truth from Paul, the inspired author, right? Who, 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 these are God-breathed words. They're legit. They're good, right? I think the problem is that we view our salvation uh, here in the 21st century, and maybe we have for a long time, we, we view salvation on our part as simply a choice, right? We chose to come to Christ. We chose to believe in what Jesus did. We chose to follow him. We chose to place, place our faith in him. And if that's all that it is, then we can choose to leave Christ, right? We can choose to deny what Jesus did. We can choose to follow someone else, not him. We can choose to place our faith in another person or another religious tradition. If it's just a choice, Why can't I make another one? But that is not an accurate picture of what salvation is. Salvation is a choice. There is a choice that's involved, no question. But after that choice, after that choice to repent and place our faith in Christ, give our lives to Christ, hand it over, here it is, then what he does is completely transform everything. Everything changes for us after that choice is made. And this is all over Scripture. I'm just going to show you some places, make a little case here. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5 says, Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one by the flesh, by their, by their body, the way they look, even though we have known Christ by the flesh. Yet now we know him in this way no longer. We know he's much more than his human form, right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. The old things have passed away. They're dead. They're gone. Behold, new things have come. See, I think the problem with this transformation that happens when we're saved is that we look the same on the outside, right? That's what he's saying here, right? But, but on the inside, we are completely new. In fact, we're a new creature is really what this is saying. We're a new thing, like, like a... Um, a panda and an alligator are two different things, right? Um, that, that's what it means. Like, we're a new creature. Like, what we are on the inside is nothing like we were before. We're completely different. But we look the same on the outside, right? I think if suddenly we all, our skin all tur- turned neon green when we became believers, we'd be like, oh, something's different about you, right? Because we'd, like, we'd see it, Right? But this whole transformation is all internal. And so sometimes we're like, I don't know that much has changed. Everything has changed. You're a completely new being on the inside, right? 
Galatians 6 uh, says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the Lord has been crucified to me, and I to the world. I'm dead to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. The reason why I threw this one in here is that this is, this is a decision that he's talking about. And in the context of this, and it's clear here too, he's like, you can make a decision to be circumcised or not to be circumcised. And some people at this time were like, hey, you got to be circumcised in order to really be a part of the people of God, right? And he's like, circumcision, uncircumcision, that choice means nothing. Like that choice is, I guess it's something, but the only thing that really matters is the new creation. That's what really matters is that you're completely new on the inside. Romans 6, 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life, in a completely new way of life. Verse 6, he talks about the old self being crucified with him. Who we were is dead and buried, and who we are is a completely new creation. Completely new life. Am I beating a dead horse enough at this point? I'm going to keep beating it. Here we go. John 3. This is a a scene that many of us are familiar with. Uh, This is Jesus sitting down with this religious leader named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was really curious about what was going on with Jesus. So he's asking him all these questions, right? Jesus responded to him, Nicodemus, said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a person be born when he's old? He cannot enter his mother's womb a second time and be born, can he? Like, this doesn't make any sense to him. He's like, I'm, I'm a pretty large human being at this point. I don't see how I get back in my mom's belly, right? How does this whole thing work? And Jesus is like, ah, you don't get it, right? Look what he says. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which has been born of the flesh is flesh, and that which has been born of the spirit is spirit. This isn't a, a, a bodily rebirth. This is a spiritual rebirth, right? Birthing something new, completely different. And there's plenty of passages that we're not going to go to, I'd love to go to, that just talk about this new self, this new person in Christ. That's who we are. Salvation is not just a decision that we made in a moment. It's not a commitment we made in a moment. It's not a moment of repentance. It is that, but it's way more than that. Because after that decision was a complete transformation of the person, of who we were on the inside. And for that new creation to somehow be uncreated is illogical. That new life to somehow be the old life again, it just, it, it's just illogical. What, you're going to be reborn into the person you were before? Like, it doesn't make any sense biblically. The spiritually reborn person cannot turn back the clock. You're new, period. So having made that case, now let's look back at this verse, right? With this in mind. Look at 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. If someone stops pursuing a Christian life, what does that say about their status 
as either an old or new creation. It says that they're an old creation. That's what it says. No matter what, no matter for how long of a time they pursued the Christian life, they were always an old creation, not a new one, right? If someone stops pursuing the Christian life, what does that say about the death, burial, and resurrection that they had in Christ? Well, they never died. It didn't occur, right? What does that say about this spiritual rebirth? They were never rebirthed. They were never born again. It didn't didn't occur. That's what it should tell us, right? New creations continue in the faith. They do. Because they're different now. He says, firmly established, which which actually means having a foundation laid. There was a foundation laid. And by the way, this is a passive verb, which means you didn't lay the foundation, he laid the foundation. All of this work is his work, not ours, right? He laid this foundation, planted us into this foundation. Those resurrected to new life have a faith foundation that was laid in their transformation, and he says, and, and, and is established and steadfast, which means firmly anchored, deeply planted. Those born of the Spirit of God have a firm, immovable status. Shifting away, falling away, walking away is not a thing for those who are new in Christ. Now, I know I spent a lot of time like making the case for why we need to view this a little differently than we think we want to view it, but I'm going to give you the most um, convincing linguistic evidence we have, okay? So this is a, a language thing. The word if at the beginning of this, verse 23, is, is what we call in Greek a first-class condition, which actually means it, it's an assumed if, if. It's not a question, He knows they're going to continue in the faith. He knows they are firmly established. He knows they are steadfast. He knows they're not going to shift from the hope of the gospel. He's saying, I'm assuming this condition is true, so it is true. In fact, many times first-class conditions are, the word if is translated as since. Now hear this with since, which it easily could be translated that way. Since indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and are not shifting away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. That changes the whole thing, doesn't it? That's what, the, that's what he's saying. He's not questioning whether they're, they're going to continue in the faith. They are going to continue in the faith. And he says, because you're going to continue in the faith, because this is the way that it is, you are all of these things. You have reconciliation to God. You are near to him. I know, that was long to get to that point, but there we go. He finishes off with, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Paul was a minister, a servant is really what the word is here, a servant of this great news, of Jesus' death, reconciling us, making us completely new, completely holy, prepared for the Creator's use making us who were morally bankrupt into morally spotless. No wonder Paul felt privileged to share this message with the world, right? So good. Point on your hand out if you want to fill it in is, this is, 
this is only effective to those who, by genuine faith, have been truly transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Transformed in gospel. This is only effective to those who, by genuine faith, have been truly transformed by the gospel of Jesus. Let's read the bottom of the handout together. We had so messed up our relationship with our Creator that it took a man who was fully God to address the problem. We had distanced ourselves from God, pushed Him away, and rejected His ways of thinking and living for our own evil ways. But now, for those who are truly His, that is now in the past for us. We are his people, a holy people, in a state of perpetual innocence, where no charges now or in the future will ever stick. Best of all, we get to experience a repaired relationship with him, in which nothing will ever taint or distance us from him ever again. Some questions you've had on your handout throughout um, the morning here. What does it mean for you that you are in a reconciled relationship with your creator? Are you better at seeing yourself as who you were or what Jesus has made you now? Have you embraced your fixed place given to you by by God in his people of faith? Or are you letting an insecurity based on your worthiness to rob you of the joy of our shared hope? Let me pray for us. Lord, we are so thankful for what you've done. We just want to receive it. We want to... embrace it. We want to just be really, really thankful for it because we are really thankful for what you've done. Help us not to push it away in in some sort of um, false humility or or sense of unworthiness, uh, that we would embrace your truth, that we would embrace your, um, your work on our behalf. And not just your work to forgive us, but your work to transform us. That has already been done, has already been accomplished by what you did. Lord, help us to live in that reality. Help our outer life reflect more and more every day the inner realities of what you've done in us. Pray this all in your name.